as we uh, come now to the scripture, let me ask you to please, to please pray with me. Father in heaven, again, we're amazed, simply amazed, that you, the creator of all that is, would communicate with us. Uh, we do know our brothers that went before us centuries ago wrote well that unless you condescend to us, unless you come to us, then we have no way really to know of any blessedness that is ours in you. And so we thank you for writing to us, to communicating clearly to us, to laying out for us that which is true, for giving us your spirit, the one who uh, moved in those who wrote this book, and you give your spirit to us to help us to understand, to incline our hearts in such a way, our minds to you, that we would receive it and believe. So, Father, I pray that you would do that now by your Spirit, overcome any resistance that we have to your word, enable us to trust that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Genesis and chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, please. And to read this entire chapter. Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> Verse 1, hear the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruits of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruits of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, then they, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, we've been talking from these last couple of weeks 
a bit of a departure, as we've said for me, rather than preaching through a book, but to take a theme, and that theme being covenant. The call to worship, which I used this morning from Psalm 25, verse 14, said that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and to those who will make known his covenant. And so this notion of understanding the plan of God, understanding the secret counsel of God, understanding uh, God's purpose for life, for his creation, uh, we take up this notion of covenant because it says that God will through, by way of his covenant, his covenants, be a way uh, to, to, to make this counsel known that we might speak to God, God might speak to us. Uh, as friend, if you will, to friend, to lay out for us the very purpose of life. So for to know anything about our lives or to really understand that, then most assuredly we need to know something in the context of this covenant. We've said that covenant means that there's a binding of parties, a binding, in this case, of God and his creation. Because we've said we can look at the whole act of creation in the context of covenant, a binding of these parties together, a, 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 a And we said that in the midst of such a covenant and these parties coming together, there's an identification of who's involved here. There's a a definition, if you will, a laying out of who's involved here and what the responsibilities are. And God identifies himself, you see, as creator. And as creator, he is the author, thus he has the authority over all that he's made. And he's the one who initiates, who brings forth this covenant. It's done by him. He doesn't negotiate with his creation. He just said, this is the way that it is. I've made it. I have authority. This is, this is how it is. And so he identifies himself as the one who is the author, the one who is the creator. As such, we realize, this is all review, this is, with such we realize that he stands outside of the creation. The creation isn't him in that sense, but he stands outside of it. He exists apart from it because he's self-existent. He doesn't need the creation. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need this creation to add anything to him. He's eternal. And as eternal, he always is. As eternal, he's inescapable. And thus we have God, the author of this covenant and this creation. We realize, most especially, as ones created, that we as human beings are in a unique place in his creation. Because uniquely he's made us in his image. All the other animals came after their kind, you remember, in Genesis 1. But we are created in his image. That is, to reflect him. We're not God, we're human beings. So he didn't make us in his image in the sense that he made us to be gods. But he made us in his image to reflect who he is. Thus, we have reasoning capabilities and we're moral. That is, all that God did was good. All that we are to do is to be good. We're to be moral creatures. Uh, Some ancient old dead guys, theologians, have put it that uh, we were created with an original righteousness, meaning that we were, as human beings, Adam and Eve, created to be in right relationship with God, that there was nothing to interfere in that relationship. And so there, in fact, they were. God lays out various stipulations for his creation, most especially human beings. And in these stipulations, he's, these stipulations, he's a right to give because he's the creator of all that is. He says to, to human beings... And you're to be fruitful and multiply. And you're to do that in the context of marriage. It comes right from Genesis 1 and 2. And so they're to have children. And these children are to come from a relationship, the context of a man leaving his father and mother and being united to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. So we see that. That's a stipulation of this covenant. God says, this is what I've made. This is our relationship. This is how you're to live that out in faithfulness to me. You're to uh, be fruitful. You're to multiply. And you're to do that in the context of this one flesh marriage relationship. Secondly, he says that you're to work. He says, God worked in creation. You reflect me. You're to work. By the way, the, this whole marriage and family and all of that, and being having a society, that, that's all reflecting God's social nature of love, really, uh, in the context of his being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the second stipulation, this idea of work reflects him because God works, so we work, we labor, we work. That's something that is good to do. And uh, so God says to, to Adam that you're to till, the, 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 cultivate this garden, you're to be the overseer of it, you're to work it. And so we are then also to work. And then finally, as God rested on the seventh day, we too as human beings are to rest. And we're to find our rest 
in what God has created and in God. So our rest from our labors is in a sense an act of worship. It's to say, God, we trust you. Uh, We can take one whole day, set it aside, not work, and yet know that you are the very one who supplies all of our our needs. And so we see this this life for human beings in, in the context of relationships at the most basic level, relationships of family, And we see also, uh, as human beings, we're to work as a good thing. We also see that we're to rest. And our rest, the way that we rest, is to know that God is. To know that God is the creator. He is is ruling and reigning over us. And, And so that is to put us, if you will, at rest, knowing that he is God. Now, we said that we were uh, exploring all of these covenants to, to, to understand uh, where it is that we fit in the midst of this, how, how we should understand our lives. And, and frankly, when I read just what I've, or say just what I've said, uh, it doesn't really describe all of my life. By that I mean, it seems rather idyllic when, when we read in these opening chapters of Genesis about raising children and having family and being married and working and resting. It all seems so wonderful. It all seems like everything just fits just perfectly and and while I still am married and have children and that's wonderful by the way uh, and uh, I work and, and that's wonderful too by the way and uh, um, rest at least try uh, uh, it's not idyllic is it I mean when we really think about life honestly we wonder how it is that all this is working out we understand that having children and raising them isn't the easiest thing in the world. It can create some difficulties in the midst of all of that. And being married isn't the easiest thing either. And we look at a culture and the whole society, you would expect from these opening chapters of Genesis, that things then we would see a very different picture of life than we actually see in the reality of our existence. And we would expect in the midst of what we see in Genesis for raising children to be easy and, 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 and to be married would be true for everyone and, and it would be a, a great estate and all of that. But we find that not all marry and those who do we even find difficulties in the midst of that, even in the best of marriages but also then we see death can end that relationship as can divorce we see unfaithfulness in the midst of marriage relationships and you get the impression at least from the very beginning that that isn't the way it ought to be that that's not how God originally designed it that's not how it's to play out and then we see in the context of our work you get the sense that Adam's work day would have been much more pleasant than many of our work days seem to be in the kinds of things we end up doing and we see that, 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 that in our day it appears as if the earth is fighting back and taking from us that we have to really work to get what we need from this earth. And resources are limited. And then in the context of work relationships, we, we find tensions and all of that. So you just say, hmm. And then finally in the midst of our rest, how much rest do we really see in life? How much rest do we really get? Genuine rest that really refreshes. And if our rest is to be in the context of resting in who God is and resting because of who God is, then we think in the culture in which we live, how few actually acknowledge God, actually trust him and rest in him. And so you get the sense that what we've been through so far in this covenant of creation doesn't quite explain life at the moment, that there's, there's more to it that as it, as it unfolds. And, and that unfolding is what we read this morning in Genesis 3 that may describe more of life as we see it than we've been reading or talking about, talking about thus far. Um, because you see, the focal aspect of this covenant of creation is... is at least in the context of the stipulations, come in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2 of Genesis. You know these verses, I trust. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of the tree, uh, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
So we see that the, the focal aspect, of, at least in the context of the responsibilities of human beings, not only in the context of their family and marriage and children and work and rest and all that, is this stipulation of perfect obedience. God sets this up. That's why I read out of Westminster this morning. We don't usually do that. It's a confessional document of our, of our church and so forth, and, and historic and, and, and wonderful and all that as a summary of the Christian faith. Uh, but um, if you haven't read Westminster in a while or ever, it would behoove you to do that. You can Google it and find it, at least in the older language. But, um, and we have some books around here. It's little, it's short, 50 pages. But uh, this, this notion of covenant, let me read again from chapter 7 of Westminster. The distance between God and his creation is so great that although reasoning creatures owe him obedience as their creator. And it says reasoning creatures. Why would it say that? Because anyone reasoning who sees who God is would realize the best thing I can do is follow him. Right? So reasoning creatures owe him obedience as their creator. They nonetheless could never realize any blessedness or reward from him without his willingly condescending to them. In other words, him coming to them rather than them going to him. It just simply means that God needs to reveal himself to us because he's God and we're not. And so it pleased God to provide for man by means of covenants. That is, a way that had been established throughout in these early days of history uh, uh, that bound people together. They understood that like a contract. We would understand. They would understand this notion of covenant. Then, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. That is, a covenant that required obedience. A covenant that acquired, uh, required obedience. That doesn't mean that God's relationship with Adam and God's relationship with Adam and Eve was strictly on the base of these rules. There was tremendous kindness in operation in, in those early days of creation and however long it took to get them from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3. Uh, there was wonderful kindness in, uh, of God there. He made a beautiful garden. They didn't deserve that. They didn't deserve to be created. It wasn't Adam and Eve's, you know... Um, um, uh, thought or plan to be created. You know, after Adam was created, he didn't say, that was a good idea I had, right? I mean, he, he didn't have, he found himself made. There he was. And so he said, thanks. And thanks not only for making me, but thanks for this wonderful place, this paradise, this wonderful place, this garden to live where all of my needs are supplied. You've given me beautiful trees from which I can eat and all of that, and there are animals, and now you've given me a wife and these wonderful mandates and all of that, and I reflect you, uh, and who better to reflect than the very God of the universe? And so all was well there, and, and Adam didn't deserve any of that. He didn't merit it. It was all given to him. So, so it wasn't just based on these rules that God was relating to, to Adam. But, but there was something here in the midst of this covenant, this stipulation that said, you must obey me. Now, please understand, that is reasonable. Because in any relationship, there are always rules. You know, believe that. Think of somebody you're in relationship with. And think first of the rules they've broken that's hurt you. And then understanding if you act in a particular way towards them, what will that do to that relationship? We just know that. And the, the very essence of relationship, of binding parties together is justice. Meaning to treat the other as the other deserves. Nothing more basic than that. Well, the question then is, what does God deserve in the context of relationship with him. What does God deserve? Well, he's God. And the scripture speaks of us honoring God as God. What does that mean? It means to treat him as God. And so we're to reflect him. We're to glorify him. And in glorifying, we're to show his worth. But what is his worth? And how do we show that? What his worth would be? Perfect submission. He's worth that. He made us. We depend upon him utterly. We're not autonomous. We can't be. Without God, we simply aren't. And so, we simply reveal that. We cast our dependence upon him for everything. And that, that shows itself in perfect, and I would also add, joyful obedience. 
Because we realize this is great, this is best, there can be nothing better than this. And so, when God lays out this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it, it sounds rather odd to us. What an odd title. Surely God would want Adam and Eve to know good and evil, wouldn't he? In fact, wouldn't he even presuppose it? That is to say, in making this tree, this, this funny name, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, doesn't that presuppose that they have a sense of what good is and what evil is? In other words, isn't he depending on them to look at that tree, hear his voice and say, I won't eat of that because to eat of it would be evil. Not to eat of it would be good. So there's a sense in which he's presupposing that they have some discernment concerning good and evil. And we realize it's not the fruit that's bad. It doesn't seem to be whatever comes off that tree. If you eat that, ooh, all of a sudden, boom, transforms your life. Oh. It's all sorts of food jokes I'm not even going to go into. But, uh, that transform our lives. But, the, um, uh, uh, but it's not the fruit of that. But there's something that stands here. And God says, here's this test of obedience. And, and it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God, in a sense, is saying, I, as God, am the one who defines what is good and evil. Obey me. Receive that. Live in the midst of that. Now, it's odd, isn't it, that the serpent comes? And we wonder about that because we think this is the Garden of Eden. It isn't, it isn't, really, isn't really Narnia. Um, uh, you know, where the trees and the animals talk. We don't have any indication as we're reading through this that animals talk. And so we go, well, wasn't this rather surprising that this serpent comes uh, there and begins talking to Eve? What do, we make of, what do we make of that? Well, the short answer is I don't know exactly. Doesn't tell us. Just describes it, just lays it out for us. But let me say this, a couple of things. Number one, God obviously, as we know from reading the scripture, used animals to talk to people, like Balaam's donkey. Right? Happened, can happen. Animals can actually talk. Now, if you come to me and say, your cat has been talking to you, uh, well, we'll work on that. But, but it's happened in the past, right? Um, and secondly, think of this. Always, when that which is contrary to God comes our way, there is a reversal of order, meaning there's a disrespect to God. Let me work this out with you. The serpent comes to Eve in order to tempt Eve from following God. In the midst of the serpent coming to Eve, we have already a dishonor of God in two ways. First, the serpent. Adam and Eve were different than the beasts of the field, than the animals. They were unique. The uniqueness was they were created in the image of God. The scripture says that God took Adam, made him and breathed him to him and made him a living soul that didn't happen with any of the animals, didn't happen with any of the beasts of the field. And Adam then and Eve were together to rule over this creation. They were to rule over the animals. And so Satan comes to tempt them, reversing that order. Satan comes in, a, in an animal. Didn't, we, don't know, we don't know exactly what this thing looked like. Not a snake as we know it. That was part of the curse to, 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 to crawl on its belly. So we don't know if it was upright or on it. We don't know. But, but this animal, let's say, comes to Eve. And she should have said, this is absurd. How can an animal speak to me of God? Because... We, human beings, are the ones to have dominion over the animals, not to get instruction about God from them. And could I just interpose that sin is absurd? How absurd is it for a human being to follow or love anyone but God? Isn't it absurd? Now, it's common, <laughs> but it's absurd, isn't it? Why? Why would anyone follow after someone who isn't God when we could follow after God? Following your own passions, 
that are contrary to God's ways is as smart as listening to your goldfish tell you how to live, right? Following a professor who's teaching you something that isn't true from God, you see? Or following any other person who's teaching such, a peer, or any other philosophy of life is absurd when God is taught and spoken. And so uh, the absurdity, of th- this should strike us as absurd. This beast coming to talk to Eve, she should have gone, this is crazy, get out of here. You don't tell me, I tell you, because I'm creating the image of God and God has given us this place to rule. The second reversal of order is that Satan comes to Eve. He should have come, if he were going to respect God's order, he should have come to Adam. Now please understand, and we've gone through this a zillion times, but please understand that men and women, Adam and Eve, were in their essence, if you want a big word, ontologically, but in their essence, equal before God and equal before each other. But in terms of their roles, in terms of how God made them to be in the context of their life together, there were differences. Adam, we see, was created first. He was created first and he was given a certain headship, as we might say, a certain responsibility in the midst of the garden. He, he was the one to whom God gave the initial instruction that you shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was the one who named the animals. And we'll see later that he even named Eve. We'll see even later that that all of this whole episode is referred to the sin of Adam. When they, when they fell away, God came to Adam and not to Eve. Eve was made from her, him to be a helper to him. So there's this relationship. It's called an economic relationship, if you will. A relationship of roles, not money, but a relationship of roles together. Um, and and so, so Adam, being the head of the garden, is the one to whom Satan should have come. Now, he abdicated that responsibility miserably. He was standing right there. After Eve ate from the tree, she didn't have to like wonder where Adam is. Let me go find him. He was right there. He should have dealt with it. He didn't. That's why it's his ultimate responsibility. That way the Apostle Paul would write of this, that Eve was deceived. It doesn't mean that women are more easily deceived than men, but he was simply saying that it wasn't her responsibility at that moment in time. In this particular place, it was Adam's responsibility, and he blew it. Okay? So again, this, this reversal of order, Satan comes, you see, always, and even in his coming, and the coming of temptation, there's a disrespect for God in his order. So we see this whole scene being, being set up, this scene that will ultimately explain so much for us, really, um, about our lives. We notice that this temptation comes outside of them. Um, it's, it's always a mystery to any theologian, any philosopher. It's, evil is always a mystery to us. How did it get here, especially in the context of a good God who creates? The Bible doesn't tell us that. It just says that it did. Now, it shows us the mechanism through Adam and Eve and through their sin and all of that. But, but here, this temptation wasn't part of them. It came from the outside. It came from Satan. Uh, uh, for all we know, if Satan hadn't entered the garden at that point in time or any point in time, at least this thought may not have even crossed their mind to do this. We, we simply don't know. But at this point, we realize it comes from without. It comes from outside of, of themselves. And why? You say, well, they had the free will to, to choose one way or the other, and that is certainly true. They certainly had the ability to either obey or not obey at this point in time. What, what confuses us, because they had the ability to obey, what confuses us is that they actually disobeyed. We just wonder why that happened. But they did. That's the point of it. It wasn't to give us all the where's and, wh- and, and why's at this point. It's just to say that this is what happened at this point in time. They did um, this. Notice the, the nature of the temptation. It begins with uh, Satan, uh, again, just questioning the word of God. He said to the woman, in verse 1 of chapter 3, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? At that point in time, Satan doesn't do anything but just raise the issue, just raise the question. Did he really say that? Correct me if I'm wrong. Did he really say that? I mean, you know, and see, that's sin in us always starts there, doesn't it? It always starts with a questioning of the word of God. Is this really true? Did God really say? (coughs) 
And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the, tr- the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the, of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now that little expression, neither shall you touch it, really, God didn't say that. So I always wonder, is that significant, insignificant? You think it's significant because there's a real economy of words here as Moses lays this out for us. And so you wonder, did she, was she already starting to, was she unclear about what God has, had, had really said? And then the serpent in the coming in this temptation then just, just obliterates what God had said and, and contradicts it completely. And he says, oh, you will not surely dies. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you'll be like God. You'll be the one who's able to discern what is good and evil. You'll make the rules around here. By even prohibiting you from eating one of, from one of these trees, isn't God taking away your freedom? Isn't he saying, you know, I'm the one who calls the shots here and... Is that really right? Eve? Shouldn't you be the one who calls the shots here? She looks at it. It's good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. It was. To make one wise. But what is wisdom? Wisdom is standing in the face of the garden with a tree there and saying wisdom is not to eat. (laughs) That's what's really wise. Foolishness is to eat. Desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit, ate it, she gave it to her husband. And then the result, the result is always uh, in sin, at least ultimately. It doesn't always feel this way in the beginning. We don't always realize this as we first are into sin. But sin never ultimately satisfies. Sin always puts to shame. It always will. Now it may not, in the moment you do it, it may not be this quickly as it was with them. Remember, they're, they're, they're sinning out of original righteousness. They're sinning and they had never sinned before. Sadly, You and I get so accustomed to it that it satisfies at times. We actually like the immediate result of sin. But over time it can't satisfy most especially as we're in the presence of the Lord. And their eyes were open. They knew they were naked so they became very self-conscious. They were ashamed. They they tried to cover up their own sin. And again, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize this, but, but, but isn't that what we do as well? We try to cover it up. Various kinds of, various kinds of ways. We said, "Okay, I sinned there, but I'm going to do three good things today, and that'll take up for that sin." You know, um, I'm going to be very active in church for a while because of well, I've done this and that and the other thing, and so I need to get. I'll, I'll start. Okay, I'll give more. I'll I'll show up at other things more. I'll go to Bible study more. We, we try to cover up our sin rather than just admit it and deal with it and receive the forgiveness of God. We run and hide like they did. Our dear friend Jerry Bridges has a book called Respectable Sins. And you know Jerry well, I suppose, from all his trips here. And you know that he wouldn't hold that any sin is respectable. But his point there is that we've made some sins in the context of our, of our community life together kind of respectable materialism and greed. We just, we just sort of assume some of that. You know, oh, that's okay. And, and, and we kind of walk through that. Or maybe bitterness about certain issues. Well, we understand that. So you can feel that way because then and I can feel that way. And we'll kind of all feel that way together. Uh, and, and so there's, you know, anger, whatever it is that we've made some of these sins quite respectable. That's one of the ways that we cover them up. It was blatant here in the garden. It was clear. They saw it. Boom. And so what did they do? They ran and they hid from God. And so, so we know part of this result of sin is, is not only being ashamed and the guilt of it, but also it disrupts our relationship with God. They ran to hide from him. And, and it's almost incomprehensible to us to realize and prior to this sin, they were actually in, in what we would say the immediate fellowship of God. No mediator, just God in them. Scripture speaks of God walking in the cool of the garden, you see, with Adam. And, and you go, wow. And then they ran and hid from that, which of course is silly. We all know that. Do we? That it's silly to run and hide from God. We, we, ever try to do that? Ever not try to do that? It's sort of like the same as little kids when they cover their eyes and say, you can't see me. <laughs> it's cute in them. It's not so cute in us. It wasn't so cute in them. And so God came condescendingly. God came kindly and to, to look for them. And he asked them questions, the answer for which he knew, like what did you do and why did you do it and when did you do it and all of that. He knew that, but it was good confession time for them. But, but, but still, he couldn't get a good confession out of Adam because Adam began blaming like we do. That's the nature of sin, isn't it? That we begin to blame. First he blamed the woman, then he blamed God. So not only does, uh, does Adam abdicate his responsibility in the midst of the garden to be the head of this garden, uh, but, but then he 
blames her. And then he said, but she, you gave her to me, God. It's really your fault. And she blames as well. So it disrupts her relationship with God. It disrupts her relationship with each other. And we know that because I don't think Eve was probably too thrilled after they got together and, and they started, you know, talking about this. So, Adam, why did you blame me when God said, what did you do? Why did you, you know, man up and take the responsibility? I like that phrase lately. Uh, take the responsibility for, uh, for, for this situation. What, what, what's the deal? So they hurt their relationship with each other. And we see that in the context of life, don't we? All of a sudden, life's becoming more clear, isn't it? Because we see the disruption in relationship with God. We see the disruption in relationship with each other. We see in the context of family. We see it in the context of faith in him. We see the difficulties of all of that. And then comes God's response to them. He, he first signals out the, singles out the, um, the, the serpent, and, and, uh, and, and you wouldn't expect anything good there. Uh, but then, verse 15, an, an amazing point of grace. Notice. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now it's going to culminate in that last little expression. But you see, what a blessing it is. How much grace there is, even in the midst of their sin. That God would say, I'm going to put hostility between you and the serpent. You would think that the end result of all of this is that the serpent and the woman are going to be pals forever. And then everything's going to go down the tubes because she's going to be with him because she just decided to follow him and they ran from God. But God says, no, 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 what I'll do because I'm gracious and kind. I'm going to put hostility between you and the serpent. In fact, between your seed and his. And we wonder, what does that mean? What's the seed of the serpent? Other demons? As we read through the book of Genesis, what we find is, is that there are two lines that begin to, to, to unfold for us. There's the line of those who are rebelling against God, and there's this line of those who are going to be in covenant with God. We, we see the line of rebellion in Cain, for instance, who uh, the Apostle John refers to as one who's, who's a son of the evil one, a descendant really of the evil one. And we, we see it in, in this man named Lamech who, who, who kills a man who just wounded him. And so he's a, a violent, violent man. We see it in that. We see it in those who are the peers of Noah in the days of Noah when, when, when the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of human beings were evil continuously. We see it in those who built the tower in Genesis chapter 11. They're uh, after a name for themselves and so we see that. But, but in the same sense we see Abel and we see Seth who comes as a substitute, you see. This one Seth who's following after God. We see it uh, in, in, in the context of of, uh, of uh, of Enoch, and we see it in the context of, of, of Noah. So, so there's this other line, and so you get the sense that God in his graciousness will save some out of this now sinful humanity. And then it comes to the head. He says, you, he shall, this one who's going to come from this woman, he shall bruise your heel. That's what Westminster calls the covenant of grace. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. In it, life was promised to Adam and through him to his descendants on the condition of perfect personal obedience. By his fall, man made himself incapable of life under that covenant. So the Lord made a second covenant, a covenant of grace. And when we speak of grace in this context, we're speaking of God's kindness to those who not only don't deserve it, but who actually deserve the opposite. They've lost relationship by way of their own sin. They're ill-deserving. That's grace. And he says, all right, I'm going to take you, even though you don't deserve it, even though you deserve to be estranged from me, even though you deserve to die, I'm going to come and preserve. In fact, it's amazing in the midst of this that he preserves all of these creation ordinances. Now, they're perverted, but he preserves them. We're going to talk about them over the next few months uh, as all of this plays out. But he doesn't end it. Eve's still going to bear children. Oh, there'll be pain. Not only physical pain as she bears the children, but pain in child rearing as well. 
but you'll still have children. Uh, there'll be disruption in, in marriage. It won't be as smooth as it was otherwise to be, but, but, but there'll still be marriage. She'll still have a husband. The problem is now that, that, that she'll desire his place in that marriage, and it'll cause difficulties, and he'll rule over her, which could be a blessing if he does it well, but not a blessing if he doesn't do it well. And so well, that's going to be, could be messed up because of this sin that's now in them. And then work will be disrupted as well rather than, 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 than having this idyllic work situation with Adam and all who come after him there will be difficulties the earth will fight back and take from us as opposed to give to us and so we'll have to fight it in the midst of all of that and this work relationship will become difficult that will make rest difficult as well because we won't be in this idyllic garden where we see all that's created by God and just worship him and so now that will be difficult as well but in the midst of that redemption will come because this one from the seed of the woman will come and destroy this one who is evil. We say all of that because Adam was not only in a unique position uh, compared to all the creation, that is, he and Eve created in the image of God, but Adam was also unique in the sense that he represented all of mankind that he was the one who stood if you will in the garden for us all whatever happened to him whatever he decided we decided he's rather like our representative that we might send to congress and you would say well that's not fair at least when my representatives in congress do something that I don't like I can at least say well I voted for him But here, I'm having condemnation without elected representation, right? We should throw something into the sea about that. What's the deal? Well, it may seem unfair to you that Adam represented you, but who do you think would make the better choice to represent you and me? God or you? God chose Adam, made Adam to be our representative Perhaps he was the best one to represent us. So in the midst of that, he represents us, Adam does, and and everything that happens to him happens to us. Thus, the sin in which he committed now is imputed to us, meaning that it's it's credited to us, means that every human being that is created, that is made, that is born, that would be a better way to say it, every human being that's born from Adam's time has this sin within them. It's there. And it affects everything about us. So much so that it causes us to rebel against God every time as well. And so we need a work of God's grace whoops, to overcome that. And so that's a huge point for us. Well, the apostle lays it out for us in Romans chapter 5. He says, Therefore, just as sin came through the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, so the death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, at that moment of sin in Adam, it's as if all of us sinned because he represented us all. But then notice in verse 15 of Romans 5, the apostle writes, but the free gift isn't like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that is, Adam's, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Do you see the thing? This, this promise in Genesis 3.15, this covenant of grace that's inaugurated there, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He comes as the seed of the woman and he takes on the evil one on our behalf so that that which Adam lost, Christ gains. That which is lost in him is redeemed in Jesus and so he comes. And through Adam we have death. Through Jesus we have life. Through Adam we have condemnation. Through Jesus we have justification, meaning that God counts us to be righteous in him. And so you see, if we can fast forward this whole history of redemption, we see it in its birth in the early days of creation, if you will, the early weeks, months, years, however long that took. And there we have it. And now we see it come to fulfillment in Jesus. And there was a night which our Lord Jesus was betrayed. He was with his disciples. And he was about to be that seed that would crush the head of the serpent, that seed of the woman. And he was with him and he said, this bread, this bread is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, our Lord Jesus took the cup that was at that table. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant. It's this covenant of grace. This cup is this new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He said, you should die because of sin, but you shall live because it's my blood shed for you. He says, often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death, the apostle says. We declare the death of Jesus until he comes, meaning that, that now we take this as a token. Take, right? Now we take this as a, as a sacrament and we say, yes, this is proof that all of this is true. We talk of covenants having a sign and a seal, a sign pointing to a seal saying, this is authentic, this is true, what this speaks of. And what this meal speaks of is the fact that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has ascended, and Christ will come again. And that there's life by believing in his name. And so as we see this meal before us, it should spark within us, and we should say, yes, that's true. What was promised in Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to covenants to understand more of life. And now we see. Yes, even in the difficulties of life and even in the sin of our own lives, we realize to be in relationship with you, we must be holy, we must be righteous, we must be good. And yet we realize in our own lives and we see it in everyone's life throughout history that that hasn't been the case. We've seen how our rebellion against you has messed up everything in our relationships, in our work, in our rest. And yet now we see more. From your very promise that one would come from the seed of the woman to destroy the serpent, to triumph over him in his evil. We know that's, we know that he has come in our Lord Jesus. Thus, all is and will be redeemed in him. Father, give us faith to believe. And even now, we pray that you would set this juice and this bread apart in such a way that even as we see it, even as we touch it, even as we smell it, even as we taste it, that it will confirm to us that all is true. And our faith will be built even as we receive from this one who is spiritually present among us, our Lord Jesus. Be with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who know themselves to be sinners without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and who believe and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners and who desire to follow after him. If that's true for you, I invite you to come in his name. Um, As you come, these two sections can come down this road to my left, these two down this aisle to my right. Come to the table, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, And as you do, realize that the seed of the woman has come, and he is Jesus. Please come.
Pray with me. Father, we give you thanks for all that you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We realize because of sin we do not deserve this. In fact, we deserve the opposite. But yet in your graciousness you've covered our sin by way of the blood of our Lord Jesus, his death, not ours. And that for that we're very, very grateful. We pray that we can live now as those who know that, those who are filled with your spirit, that we may walk with you. Father, still in this world, life is difficult. And so we pray uh, for the Belcher family, as Clay's, uh, with his family in Texas as they mourn the death of his mom. And so we pray for Clay that you'd be with him and help him um, there. Father, for Melissa Foster, as she continues to recover, we pray that you would be with her to help her and to give her strength to heal her, please. For Kevin Moore, as he continues to recover from his knee replacement surgery, we pray that you would help him as well. Father, we know that we are to um, follow after you. We know that we are to um, be fruitful and multiply, and yet we know that there's some who have been unable to have children who desire them. We pray that you would bless them. For others who find raising children to be a difficult thing, we pray you give them strength. For those who would love to be married but aren't, we pray for them that you would bless them as well. And Father, for those who are married and find it a struggle, we pray that you would enable them to persevere and that you would give them grace. In our work, God, we pray that you would enable us to work in a way that's glorifying to you, that sees our work as that which reflects you. So help us in that. Father, we pray that we may rest well in a way that shows that we believe and we trust in you. So please help us to rest, we pray. And now, God, as we go from this place, I pray that you would enable us to, to live in a way that shows you for we're to reflect you. And may we do that with great joy. This, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please receive this as God's benediction unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.